Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutille, and I'm talking from the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. Every now and then, we like to shine a light on a past publication of the Champlain Society, and this time I'd like to talk about the 2002 volume entitled The Rising Country, the Hale Amherst Correspondence, 1799-1825. It was done by Roger Hall and Sid Shelton. My guest today is Roger Hall, Professor Emeritus in History at Western University. He's written on all sorts of topics over the years and, of course, served with great distinction as general editor of the Champlain Society for 15 years. Roger is an old friend and collaborator, and I'm delighted to welcome him to the studio. Very happy to be here. Before we start with the book, Roger, I want you to take me somewhere. I want to be in a house on Rue Saint-Louis in Quebec City. It's the summer of 1818, 200 years ago, and there's a lady writing a letter. What is happening? The lady in question is, as you said before, Elizabeth Hale. Um, But Elizabeth Frances Amherst Hale is her full name, and it's important to emphasize the Amherst. She is a gentlewoman. Uh, of English birth, uh, the niece of uh, Lord Geoffrey Amherst. And she is in Quebec because she is married to a man named, uh, whose name is Colonel John Hale, who's the deputy paymaster general of the British forces. They live in uh, what is essentially a fortified house on Saint-Louis, Rue Saint-Louis, uh, number 17, and uh, people who are interested can see that house today, and they will notice that it has a, an addition uh, which was uh, necessary to, to keep the strong box in, and they will notice it has peculiar iron shutters which uh, were put in place to uh, thwart any attempt to steal what was the largest sum of money in British North America. Well, as you say, her husband was the paymaster. He had to keep the, ma- he had to keep the money. Deputy, <laughs> Deputy okay. Now, Elizabeth Hale is 44 years old. She uh, is writing to her brother, William Pitt Amherst. Who is he? William Pitt Anders Amherst, known in the family as Pitt, and and called that way, but she, he is always bro to her yes, in the letters. Very She's very modern. The letters are very intimate and very interesting, and it is clear that they were very close uh, uh, as young people. And that is possibly because their uh, father, uh, the brother of Lord Geoffrey Amherst, uh, William Amherst, General William Amherst, died. And they were brought up at uh, Geoffrey Amherst's estate, which he called in Kent, uh, which he called Montreal after his uh, what he considered to be his most famous victory. Well, let's recall this is Uncle Jeffrey, Uncle Jeffrey Amherst, <clears throat> who who was the commander in chief of the British forces when the conquest took place. That's right. The reason we all speak English today, uh, and you speak it so well <laughs> for somebody from Quebec. <laughs> I want to focus on this one letter. Now she writes she writes a whole bunch of letters in 1818. I want to go back 200 years, and this one letter of June 16th caught my attention in particular. She writes to her bro uh, about politics. She's also writing about patronage. She's also writing about her husband. Well, I mean, she was a woman of her time. Uh, I wouldn't call her a feminist. I wouldn't even call her a proto-feminist. She was, as women of the time who were in influential social positions, uh, she she saw it as, as her goal to advance her husband's career. She was tireless in doing so. And here's the important thing. 
She grew up uh, at the table of Jeffrey Amherst, Lord Jeffrey Amherst. Mm -hmm. She was accustomed to discussion of high matters of state, of practical matters. He had no children of his own. So these two kids, for lack of a better term, uh, grew up uh, surrounded by famous people, uh, unafraid to have their own opinions. As you say, she's a woman of high society. She is. But, uh, but, but, but transplanted to Canada as of, as of 1799. Precisely, because of what they would call now the love of her life. Right, and, right. And, and this man, who is no minor person himself. So we're, I mean, so we're talking about Hale here now. Her husband, who also figures in these letters, who writes some of the letters uh, to, to his brother-in-law who he calls a bro as well, by the way. But in any case, John Hale is a military man. Um, he was ADC to the Duke of Kent when the Duke of Kent was in North America, both at Halifax and in uh, Quebec, and uh, has developed a very close relationship. Now, we should remember the Duke of Kent is Queen Victoria's father, so uh, we're, talking, we're talking high, we're talking we're high talking society. Up there. Now, many, many historians think the Duke of Kent was a complete jerk, but this was not an opinion shared by Hale. What the Duke of Kent was, was impoverished, uh, impoverished. Uh, it didn't have a lot of money. Let's get back to that letter of June of 1818. Okay. She talks about um, that she's had to move out because she can't stand the smell of the paint. Well, what's she talking she's about? She's talking about a couple of things there. Uh, Hale, in the in the aftermath of the Napoleonic Wars, there were a lot of uh, worthies who had to be given useful positions in the empire at home. So let's just just remind our listeners the Napoleonic Wars finally ended in 1815. That's right. So we're we're talking three years later. Yeah, but I mean the aftermath. The, it it yes. takes a while for all of this to sort itself out. Hale loses his job, and he has by now. I think it's by now a family of nine. So this is significant. They still have money. They still have some property, but his 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 living is considerably diminished. So he's looking for a job. Uh, and she is doing everything she can, writing to everybody she knows in order to help secure these positions. But it's tight. It's difficult. So they have to, at the same time, they're young and ambitious people, or relatively young, in their 40s. For the time, not so young, but I mean still ambitious people. Uh, they are leaving the house they were in on Saint Louis. They have purchased a house at number 50 de Carrière Street. And for our listeners, De Carrière Street is still there in Quebec City. It is just at the base of Cap Diamant. Um, it, it's probably best known for the, the, the park and the monument on it uh, uh, to, to Wolf. But the house itself is no longer there. The house is no longer there. It, it is an empty lot, unfortunately. Oh. It was a house that was only eight or nine years old when they well, purchased it. They made a good deal. They sold the other house and came out 800 pounds on top. And 800 pounds was a lot of money. But so, it needed a fresh paint job. <laughs> uh, yes, after only eight or ten years. Uh, <laughs> but, I mean, uh, there we are. So so she was keen to move in there. It had a splendid view. Uh, she would sketch this view. because well, She's she was a painter. An amateur That's right. She's quite a painter. Yes. She uh, figures very highly as a painter in the Dictionary of Canadian Biography. And uh, she would be very surprised to know that she was such an esteemed painter. I mean, her painter. paintings are still... She's a watercolorist, mostly. Um, yeah, but mostly a watercolorist. 
watercolors, but she sketches. She sketches uh, also, well. and a lot of those things are still available. They're at the uh, they're at the Library and Archives of Canada. Yes, absolutely, and we have some of them in our book. Yes, beautifully illustrated. But but having said that, she is also remember that's nothing special. She also played the piano reasonably well. She also, I mean, she wrote. She wrote lovely yeah. letters. They're excellent letters. But, but the other thing I was going to say is, of course, moving to Quebec was not a challenge. She'd spoken French all her life, as said her husband. So, so they are capable of mixing. Well, they don't mix with the hoi polloi. They're mixing with the upper strata of, of, of uh, Quebec society. Now, well, let's talk about some of the... Um some of the uh, things that she talks about again in that letter of uh, of that letter of to her brother on June 16th she talks about um, Sir John Sherbrooke and how Sir John Sherbrooke is going mad uh, his present state of health makes him very necessary she says um, uh, that that he should that he should get away. Uh, he's now able to walk with a stick and get up, get up and downstairs, but his nerves are dreadfully shattered. She says, "What is she talking about?" Uh, Sir John Sherbert, by that juncture, he had not been well most of his life, but he was uh, he was quite ill. This is a stroke, uh, clearly, and and one of uh, others that he had had before. This one would finish him off pretty well. Uh, he was a great friend to the um, to, to to the Hales. Uh, he was actually, uh, and there may be different interpretations here, he was, he was a friend to, to the Canadian as well. He uh, saw them very sympathetically, and uh, that may be why there's still a Sherbrooke Street in London. <laughs> the last part of her letter, interestingly, talks about climate change. I mean, we all talk about the weather, and she obviously had the habit early, but she talks about how the, the weather has become a great deal colder. That the melons are, are not. Uh, no, is that you who says that it's the melons who? No, it's her. It's her. She says the the, the melons. Um, the melons were the finest I have ever tasted in great abundance, uh, only requiring a glass frames for about a month, and sometimes not even that. Now they are rare. Now they very rarely ripen and have very inferior flavor. I mean, she's commenting on the flavor of the melons. It's just not what it used to be. What is going on? Well, remember, they've lived now in Quebec for a long time. They know the limitations. She writes at other times about the weather as opposed to the climate. She feared the climate to begin with, but then she, of course, grew used to it. And uh, they, they, they created a lot of gardens and uh, were very pleased that this new lot would have a large space and good sun and, and that kind of thing. But they, they built them in, uh, or uh, grew them in, in glass frames, of course, uh, you know, minor hothouses. Okay, let's helicopter a little bit uh, about beyond this, this one wonderful letter. I mean, I spotted it because it's 200 years later, and yes. here we are, and it's, it's a letter that still I find very vibrant and very contemporary. She talks about politics, she talks about her husband's job and his look for jobs, and she's talking about the smell of the paint, and she's talking about uh, the books that she can't read because uh, her brother did send her books and she just hasn't gone around to it and she's got because she's too busy. The books are about her brother that she's re referring to yes. specifically who had just finished what was the second British embassy to China. And, and uh, Pitt refused to kowtow to the Chinese emperor and that's how the word comes into the English language. Oh, right. It was a failure, that incidentally, a failure. the embassy. Uh, he later he becomes, of course, governor general okay, of India. So take us back. Um, what, what, what attracted you and Sid Shelton to this project so many years ago? Well, it's, 
as they say, it's a long story. We don't, um, we don't have that kind of time. Uh, no, no, I don't have that. <laughs> right. Okay, so uh, I was invited to give a lecture to a group at Glendon, a part of York University, called Living and Learning in Retirement. And I was going on about something that I worked on at the time called the Canada Company, which involved transatlantic finance. I realized after it was over by the questioning that there was somebody in the audience who knew a hell of a lot more about this than I did. And this turned out to be Sid Shelton, who had been the um, uh, archivist of Williams and Glynn's Bank in London. And he, Sir Morris Glynn, who had been his employer, had inherited a bunch of papers from a distant relative who was, in fact, Elizabeth Frances Amherst Hale, one of the, the granddaughters, as a matter of fact. Sid had, uh, the, the, the papers had been deposited by Sir Morris at the, at the um, University of Toronto, of Toronto in, in the rare books. And Sid had been working on these and uh, had made progress, but not as much progress as he'd liked. And he asked if I'd rather like to collaborate with him. Well, I did so for, for a number of years. Uh, and he passed and away. Sid passed away, but I carried on. This was a labor of love, and I wanted to do my best for Sid as well in this. But I kept uncovering more and more papers. So you so found stuff. Oh, a lot of stuff. And, uh, and, and uh, I, of course, had to uh, trans transpose those uh, letters. And uh, eventually uh, the India office proved to be a real boon because of uh, Lord Hammer's connection. What makes this correspondence between Elizabeth Hale and her brother so important for historians, for so important for Canadians. What it's a fat book you put together. Here. It's intimate, uh, which is nice uh, because we don't have much of the intimacy amongst uh, British government officials at this time. And we should remember that uh, you know th this was a, a new world for the British. They had never before conquered and occupied a territory that was full of Europeans. So the relationship is 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 peculiar. And uh, the, the Hale Amherst uh, correspondence uh, reveals all the discomfort and yet so many of the rewards and, and the inner life of these English uh, overlords, yes. for lack, yes. lack of a better Talk term. about that. You mentioned that they, she and her husband are both fluent in French. What, what insights do they reveal about the rapport between French Canadians and these British well, they, they reveal that there isn't a lot of rapport, that it's yes, a very divided very much, society. Very much two solitudes. Yeah, yes, it is yes. two solitudes. Well, they, they reveal other things. For example, um, I mean, he, he grew up on a, uh, a large estate, which involved, he knew farming. John, John yeah. Haley. And, and uh, he writes about how he demonstrated uh, the, the, I guess, essentially the three-field system to some of the uh, habitants. Uh, who were in in uh, in, in in Quebec, mm -hmm. and uh, you know this was a revelation to them because they had used the old seigneurial system and it really they'd overworked the land as we they know. Land. And, uh, yes, yes. And this is interesting, and and other technical innovations of that sort, very very much. The rapport between people, the relationships. That's the, right. The networks. And, and, the and networks. Remember, the year after this letter is written, they buy a seigneury themselves. Uh, yes, uh, which mm -hmm. uh, and, and which they, which is really summer home for them, but it's a huge place, and uh, they intend to uh, make it an agricultural uh, 
repository. They bring their um, skills to them. 1818 is not a a great year in terms of major events. I I looked it up before... Uh, coming here, I mean, really, the the I'd say the the there are two cultural events that matter in 1818. Number one is the publication of Frankenstein. Uh, Mary Shelley publishes Frankenstein in 1818, and at the end of 1818, uh, uh, Holy Night is played for the first time in Austria. That's that's that you know, but otherwise there are a few events here and there. Those those events would have no, been unnoticed in Quebec. Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> they, it just took a while for it to. Well, yeah, it but took it's, a while it's, for it it's, to come it's back. again the post-war period. Yes, but I think it's important for the Hales. Yeah. It's an important year because it it shows they're not going to get a job for him in England. His future is here in Canada, and indeed, uh, that's what he secures in that year. You call the book the Rising Country. What what do you mean by that? Well, it ties in with what I was just talking about. By by 1819, when they buy the seigneury, she makes the statement that there is a tendency for civilization to move west in her observation. And she now thinks that maybe Britain has had it. <laughs> just a few years. <laughs> a few years after, after winning. Ahead of time. And yeah. so the, the countries to the west are the ones, in her view, that prosper. We keep going. That's China, by the way, again. Yes. So, and, she died um, in 1826, so only yes. eight years after writing the one letters that the one letter we focused on today. The, the correspondence goes on for years and years. Yes. Um, she dies in 1826. She's only 52 years old. That's right. Uh, she dies of breast cancer, and radical treatment uh, in in Quebec by an army surgeon. It seems to work at the outset. Uh, but then, uh, clearly, there was an underlying malignancy, and, uh, and sadly, she dies. How would you describe her in a few, a few, a few words? What kind of woman was Elizabeth Hale? I'd invite her to dinner, but I don't know whether she'd come. <laughs> she seems like a fascinating woman. I, I, I mean, is there is there an earlier chorus, female correspondent of of her quality, of her breadth in Canada? Not quite. To my knowledge, I mean, there's, there's quite there's a heft here, that's impressive. What's yes, but what's important too is is her familiarity with politics and the military and and high station, combined with her domestic interests. I mean, she's raising this huge family, and what you don't see elsewhere, and I'd emphasize this again, is that um, intimacy that can only come between a brother and a sister because they know each other so well. She's not getting away with it. Well, it's what makes the book memorable. Uh, Thank you, Roger, for taking the time to talk about this volume again. Well, you're very kind. And about the the people who who made it, uh, who made it possible, the people who wrote it originally and the people who who revived it, you uh, and uh, Sid Shelton. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you'll find more about what the Society does, including its publications, its blogs, and more about these podcasts. There's even a place to become a member and a sustainer of the Society if you like these conversations with historians about Canada's history. My name is Patrice Dudzil. This interview was recorded in the Allen Slate Radio Institute of Ryerson University. It was recorded on March 29, 2018, and produced by Sumit Dami and Naomi Katz. Thank you very much, everybody. We'll see you next time.